0: So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. All right. Hey, guys, I'm here with Mark Benek. He is the vice
1: president of business ventures for Uptake and he used to be the CEO, CFO, and Vice President for Asset Performance Technologies, which I guess was acquired by Uptake in March.
2: Hi. that That is correct. Yes.
1: <laughs> Mark, th- uh, first off, uh, thanks for joining us. And how are you doing?
2: I'm doing great. Thank you. How are you?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. Uh, like um, I've been following Uptake for a while, and especially with their work that they've done with Caterpillar. Um, in the kind of artificial intelligence telemetry side, so I'm pretty fired up to get you on here.
2: Oh, thank you. I'm I'm honored to be on here.
1: <laughs> Perfect. So I guess I guess before we get we dive right into it, how did you get your start in in reliability?
2: That's a good question. So I, I think I should probably, in the interest of full disclosure up front, I I don't consider myself much of an expert at maintenance or reliability. To begin with, uh, I am a recovering mechanical engineer, uh, but I'm much more of a startup uh, kind of person. And uh, it was about, gosh, what was this, 2018? So let's say 14 or so years ago, um, I was starting a venture capital fund in New Mexico. And I happened to meet a gentleman by the name of Carlos Cashman who was starting a software company called Asset Performance Technologies. And, and uh, we became good friends and we sort of kidded each other. Whoever gets their business started first will hire the other person. And my venture capital firm didn't get off the ground. And uh, so Carlos said, hey, why don't you come, you know, start working for APT, Asset Performance Technologies, and, you know, uh, uh, you know help us do some business development work and introduce me to the local New Mexico investor investor uh, networks and that sort of thing he said oh by the way we can't pay you so <laughs> so that's how i got started maintenance and reliability was uh volunteering to work for apt but uh um, within the first uh, year and a half two years i secured uh, a, a large services contract with suncor energy up in uh in uh Fort McMurray, just north of you, um in Edmonton. And that's how we that's how we really sort of capitalized the company got started as a services business.
1: With APT, like what kind of what did you start off doing with Suncor?
2: So we were hired by Suncore to essentially perform an RCM type activity. But we told them we so look, the only way we're gonna be able to do this in a time frame that you that you've given us you know the other way we're going to be able to get the project done in a reasonable time frame and more importantly we could only have access to their experts for four hours a week instead of the usual 40 hours a week of an rcm project we said the only way we're going to be able to do this is we have to use our content our software our asset strategy library and our software to to do this quickly and and, and, that, and that's how we got started. So it was a services project where, we you know, we we're being paid as, as outside experts coming in and doing work, but we were using our tools to, to do the work appropriately and financially optimize the maintenance strategies for SunCore.
1: Awesome. Yeah, that's a really cool project. And I mean, four hours a week of, of expert time is not a lot for, for people trying to do an RCM.
2: No, no. And it was so there was that challenge. So you had, you know, 90% less staff time available. And we believe we completed the project in at least 50%, if not more, less time. That's a funny way to say that. But (laughs) we we were a lot more efficient in getting the job done than a traditional RCM approach. and a lot of that had to do with the fact that, you know, our, our library, our asset strategy library, the content piece of our offering from from APT, you can really think of it as, as RCM analyses that have already been done by equipment experts and are stored in a library for reference. So it's kind of like you, you have a leg up, right? You know, you've you've got most of the work done already. And it's just a matter of fine tuning those strategies on a financial basis for the given customer.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so like with Apt, so I was doing a little research online, and you you guys built a library of failure modes for over 800 pieces of equipment uh-huh and and to me as as like you know, I'm a mechanical em, uh engineer from MIT, so i love I love me some data, and so i I got kind of excited when I heard that. so how did you guys put that data all together?
2: Well, that's a good question, Rob. Um, It's actually got a pretty long history. um, I want to say over 25 years now, Uh, but it has its origins in the power industry at the Electric Power Research Institute or APRI. Uh, My colleagues, Dr. David Worledge and Mr. Glenn Hinchcliffe, were the ones who brought the RCM philosophy to the nuclear power industry from the aviation industry, uh, back in the 1980s, um, that was in response to accidents like Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, where the industry really banded together and realized that, hey, a, a problem at any one plant is going to be a problem for the entire industry. So the idea w- was to improve safety and reliability, and the prevailing technique then was, was reliability centered maintenance, or RCM. What the industry found, though, very quickly was that, you know, RCM is painful, in its truest form um it's expensive it's time consuming you take your best people out of their day jobs and you sequester them in a in a a room for for weeks on end um so the industry realized pretty quickly that hey you know we got 90 percent of the plant that still needs a maintenance plan but we don't have time to do rcm which caused uh uh, Warlers and Hinchcliffe to start thinking about a template-based approach to, to maintenance. Um, you know, develop the FMEA tables once in a universal sense across all known operating contexts, and then ask the experts to also uh, provide information about the tasks and intervals to mitigate those failure mechanisms across all known operating contexts. So essentially, you can think of it as, you know, Put some experts in a room with some facilitators, Hinchcliffe and Warlidge. Um, you know, go through an RCM process that's universally applicable across all known operating contexts, and then store that in a library or a database so that others can use it. And that was really the genesis of the project. You know, it started off as white papers in the early '90s uh, that started flying off the shelves and. That's when Hinchcliffe and Worledge were asked by EPRI to start to create an electronic database of 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 this
1: content. How how long was that process?
2: Well, the the process of figuring this out and getting started. Is that the question you're asking?
1: Yeah. So, like that must have taken a long time to to sit in a room and to do an RCM on 800 pieces of equipment.
2: Well, yeah. Well, again, this has been going on for over 25 years, right? So, um, you know, that I think it was the first, uh, and I'm spacing out the number now, but it was something like, you know, 32. Those were white papers. And, you know, those took a little longer, right? Because you were figuring out the process of how you do these data collection workshops and, and, you know, figuring out what are the right experts to have at the table, including the OEMs and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, so this is a multi-decade project. That's how you get to over 800 equipment types. But any single equipment type, you know, typically, you know, that can take a half a day to a couple of days to do the data collection, really depending on the size and complexity of the equipment and how many, you know, subtypes might be in that particular group. But uh, it's a pretty efficient process when compared to traditional rcm it's just that we've been doing this a long time which has allowed us to grow the library to over 800 components
1: yeah no that's pretty that's pretty exciting and it's definitely it's definitely a lot of work so you guys have something great to great there
2: well we're pretty excited you know as as apt you know we're a small company right so we basically at hinchcliffe and warlage uh, doing those data collection workshops, and, and they've been the exclusive facilitators, really, until now. These past couple of decades, but as part of uptake, now we can bring more resources, both human and financial, to the table to continue to to curate this expert content, which which we believe is a real differentiator in the marketplace for the company.
1: Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, that's why it, you know one of the reasons why I'm excited to have you on here is the. One of the one of the gaps that I see uh, with people who are in the kind of artificial intelligence field is they look at it from a it's it's almost like a, a finance perspective where the problem's unconstrained. and so they just they're like, well, give us as much data as possible and I will tell you something." And from what I can tell, like most of the insights, really like like rely like engineering is a very um structured world we we live under the kind of the realm of physics and like i think one of the approaches that we talk about like in all engineering is just like define the problem and then of course in in reliability we talk about failure modes and so i really think that combining you know the approach of Hey, these are the failure modes. And then also combining the data is is gonna be really powerful. how did you get started on that? Like, how are you applying artificial intelligence now?
2: Well, that's a good question. Um I, I wanted to say too, I was kind of reacting to your comments there. You interviewed the guys from Bebron recently, George and uh forget the other gentleman's name now, but and one of the things they talked about with the AI stuff was yeah you know it really comes down to you know, it's all about failures right and understanding what the failures are it's not just the math it's not just the finances but it's the it's the physical reasons if you will for why equipment fails uh, you know Bob Latino talked about that a lot too um, that's an important part of it so uh, you know AI companies you know uptake in particular other, others in general. Um, are generally focused on software and math and data science. But with with Uptake acquiring this library, they're they're really buying a library of subject matter expertise, right? All the different ways equipment can fail and then what to do about it. You know, the maintenance templates and the strategies to mitigate those failure mechanisms. So there's a number of different ways that we can leverage this. Um, You know, the, 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 the first and most obvious way is, you know, a lot of industries are talking about, heavy industries, I mean, are talking about the, the the sexy stuff, AI and machine learning, data science. But many of them have facilities where the assets aren't connected. <laughs> they aren't censored. Um, maybe there isn't much data coming off, if any, uh, of them, but they, they still need a, a, a maintenance strategy. And, and that's where we can step in with the library and our software tools is to to solve that problem for the unconnected asset, with connected assets, you know that have sensor streams and data is being collected and can be ingested into, you know, data science platforms and that sort of thing, like the one at Uptake. I mean, that's a great opportunity to then also use the subject matter expertise in this library to help train, um, not only help train the models, um, which is which is one way, and bring some more physics-based modeling to the data science, if you will. But also, you know, the, 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 the kind of the holy grail here is better prognostics to the user. Um, you know, th- there's been a failure on a motor. A, a, maybe there's been a temperature alarm on a motor bearing. Well, that could be, you know, one of three failure mechanisms. Here's the probability of each occurring, which then allows the owner operator to decide, okay, can I wait till the next outage or do I have to evacuate the building tomorrow or now? <laughs> there's an emergency.
1: So you mentioned that, you know, failure modes help you train the AI models. So how does that work? Like your your failure modes, you must have, are you, are you using reliability people to translate that into data or how does that, what does that process look like?
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, definitely we have reliability people on staff helping with that. But, um, you know, in some situations you don't always have enough data coming off censored equipment and so the more information you can provide about failure mechanisms, about their times to earliest failure and things like that that are contained in this library, that information can be leveraged to to build better models.
1: Yeah, no, that's cool. That's really cool. I've always kind of been interested in, in that aspect um, because, you know, like if we can identify the you know, P to I interval or P to F interval, um, you know, it's a very powerful tool in reliability.
2: Definitely, definitely, and 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 building off what you're saying, you know, the I mentioned earlier that you know we at APT, you know, now uptake have developed uh, you know, failure modes and effects analysis tables that that are universal, meaning these are all the known ways equipment can fail irregardless of operating context. And there's quite a bit of information associated with each one of those failure mechanisms. There's you know, a failure location or the, sub- like the, the subcomponent that fails. There's a degradation mechanism. There's a degradation influence. That kind of defines a unique row. And then each row also has a, a time code, we call it, which is really the times to earliest failure are kind of to the start of the PF curve uh, for for that particular failure mechanism, um, which, which is, is super important information, (laughs) you know, it rolls up into our algorithms for estimating the meantime between failure, uh, for the equipment, but that information and also the effect of stressors on any given failure mechanism, if temperature, high temperature or low temperature is present, or there's contamination, uh, of, of the fluid in the pump, or whatever, whatever we're talking about, you know, those are all mapped back to the failure mechanisms as well, um, which you know, in in, in the algorithms, uh, allow us to to take that into consideration because things are going to fail more quickly, and that's going to adjust the the mean time between failure estimation.
1: Yeah, that's that's really cool. I guess my next question, so. You guys at uptake, you're providing your your services uh, of predictive analytics to US Army on the Bradley tanks. and you know you've also done it with the I think it was all caterpillar equipment at least the, at least on the mining side. So can you guys, can you give me an example of a failure that you predicted either you know on a piece of mining equipment or on a tank?
2: I, I probably can't on either of those, just because. And I'll tell you why. First of all, I'm really—you know—I've only been at Update for six months now. Um, I wasn't involved in the mining project, and 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 the tank project is a brand new one. I mean, we're just getting started on that one, which is pretty exciting uh, uh, to to be able to do that for the U.S. government and and help uh, ensure readiness of our of our military vehicles. And our fighting vehicles, um, but 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 I, I do know of a story on a wind turbine. I mean, it was it was not long after you you may have read that Berkshire Hathaway Energy is one of our key customers, and we we monitor um, uh, most if not all of Berkshire Hathaway's wind farms and the, the turbines and the various different wind farms. Um, it was almost like immediately after the 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 system was implemented. They noticed a a potential gearbox issue on one of the turbines and were able to go ahead and fix the issue without having a catastrophic failure, which which tends to be super expensive. So um, that's a that's a that's a, a good quick example of what's possible with with the uptake platform.
1: Now, was that using like an online vibration sensor or what was the data coming in?
2: Yeah, it'd be a variety of sensors. You know, wind turbines are relatively new technologies, if I could say it that way, and are are pretty well censored up. I mean, there's a a variety, you know, variety of different sensors, vibration, temperature, you know, et cetera. Um, You know, wind speeds, everything, you know, there's I mean, we even look at weather data and, you know, wind speeds at different elevations. And that all plays into the data science modeling as well. Um so and that's I think that's reasonably unique to Uptake and and one of our differentiators is that you know we can ingest any type of data that that's relevant to the business problem you're trying to solve whether it's monitoring a wind farm or a, a Bradley
1: Yeah no that's re- that's really cool now so if if someone's listening um and they want to you know use the Uptake platform or or get you know your services on Predictive analytics. How does how does that work? Like, what does the typical implementation look like? Do you guys have like a minimum size customer, or what what does that look like?
2: So, so I'm glad you said platform because um, I want to say a few words about how uptake is structured and why it's different. Because um, we not only have a platform which you know can. Can accept data from any sources, you know, and runs in the cloud on any sort of infrastructure as a service, whether that's Amazon Web Services or, you know, Microsoft Azure or Google, whatever whatever the customer wants. Um, you know, we, most of our stuff runs on Amazon today, but we're we're agnostic as to pla- as to as to infrastructure. But we, we've built an, a, 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 an IoT platform that, um, depending on the customer's needs. Um, you know, we have 70 data scientists at Uptake, 40 of whom have PhDs. I mean, we can do the data science for you. We're also building tools, tools, so you can do the data science yourself, or you can use your data science models on our platform and have a good way to deploy, you know, uh, what it is you're trying to do. So we're creating a platform that's, that's really going to be uh, – easy enough to use that a non-engineer can be developing data science models if that's what you want. And on top of that platform, we've got applications like our asset performance management application running um, to to basically, you know, monitor, analyze, and, and plan the work for the assets in the field. As well, you know, we've already talked about the curated content play. So it's platform Applications and content that are available um, that allows us now getting to answer your question that, that allows us to to work with almost any size customer. I mean, we can deploy to global enterprises. You, you mentioned Caterpillar. They have a, a they own a rail company that we work with. And I believe we monitor something like 50 percent of the, the shipping and logistics diesel engines across the globe real time. Um, we can do global deployments for large enterprises. We can also provide a platform for a smaller enterprise or smaller company to do its own data science. Um, so I think the, the short answer to your question now that I've talked too long is to just give us a call and, and we'll provide a solution that meets your needs.
1: Well, first off, you can never talk too long. And the second thing is, uh, like I'll definitely be giving you a call after this. (laughs)
2: <laughs> well, good, good. We've uh, we've done a little bit of work in mining and we have a division of, of folks that uh, are very focused on mining right now. I, it's just not one I'm very familiar with. Um, so I couldn't cite you any examples other than what might be on our website and that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, no, that's one thing, you know, one thing you mentioned there where it's um, you don't have to be a data scientist to do machine learning is something I've been talking about for about a year now, it's like with the, a lot of platforms that are coming out either, like I've worked in Azure, but there's also the, the Google ML platform, they're fairly user friendly. And like, I've just been telling people like, get out there, try it, see what works for you, see what doesn't work for you. And like, just get a feel for it before you jump in with two feet. Kind of, how do you feel about that?
2: Well, I agree with you. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, whether, whether whether the assets are connected or unconnected, it's always a big, a, a, a big, hairy, audacious goal, if I could say it that that way, a B, BHAG to tackle, hey, I'm going to optimize the maintenance strategies for all the equipment in my plant or across my fleet or across my enterprise. And and whether we're talking about connected or unconnected, that that's always a daunting a daunting process. But there's that old adage about, you know, how do you eat an elephant? Well, one bite at a time. And and so to to your point, I think breaking things down into smaller chunks and and you know, starting off with a little bit of a sandbox, you know, as an evaluation to to show value in your organization is how you get started. Don't don't let the 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 big project get in the way of getting started with something smaller to show value.
1: Yeah, no doubt. And so that's one thing, I mean, it kind of leads up to the next question. And so like, when we talk about any reliability project, I think Joe was talking about this one is, and what he said about the IAOT was, you know, it's just like any other project and the really kind of the, the success and failure comes down to implementation. What are your tips on implementing an AI project?
2: Well, I think I think it, that's a lot of what I just said. To be honest, um, you know, start small. Um, don't don't try to tackle everything at once. I, I you know, we, we we like to and you know at uptake we we tend we tend to engage a new customer with a with a, what I'll call a smaller assessment activity up front, you know, people often refer to that as like a pilot project. I know sometimes that has, that's a loaded term, but, but, you know, to get started with, you know, whether it's a set of assets or a set of data for a particular asset or something, something smaller where you can get started, you can start to build the business case uh, internally for your organization to show, show the value of, of, of AI, of data science for your organization, that's a great way to start. And then it comes down to, and this is really customer centric and customer dependent on, you know, what the rollout would be, you know um, but you tend to want to phase that, right. You know, phase it in in chunks, as opposed to, you know, doing it all at once. Um, In my experience, you know, prior to uptake, you know the phased approach is is the way to go to to ensure success in a, in any project and and you're right you know IIOT is just another type of industrial project that should be treated like any other
1: absolutely and so you know you have a lot of customers do you ever see people who are afraid of artificial intelligence either they're afraid of you know either losing their job to a computer or they're just they don't know the power of ai and they're they're kind of reticent to turn over the health of their equipment to a computer
2: yeah we do and and i think we have to thank the terminator movie franchise for that um you know it's put the fear of god in everyone about the power of ai and machines taking over you know in my opinion we're a long ways from that and and more importantly You know, what we're talking about here for industry are tools that augment humans and augment human performance and help automate decision-making processes. Certainly, and we've all read about this in the news, you know, it's going to change the workforce. You know, there will be some jobs that are, jobs that can be automated will be eliminated. Um, I mean, think think about, I mean, think about other industries. Think about tax preparation, right? You know, before Quicken, there were probably more CPAs in the world. After Quicken, I'm guessing there's probably less. You know, because you know there's tools to automate that. I think I think it's th- that's no different in industry. But most of the studies I've read have stated that, you know, a- as certain jobs, maybe repetitive tasks could be easy automated, go away. yeah, you know, other jobs become become available, and 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 so you, you know, on on, on net, we're not really losing anything. You know, there's probably some retraining involved uh, on 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 average in that situation. But I, I don't personally get too worked up about that um, just because maybe may, may I just don't have the ability to imagine that far in the future. But I don't see the machines taking over just yet. And, and more importantly, we're still everything at uptake, you know, still still needs a human to run it. Right. And keep an eye on things. And 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 double check so the idea is to to augment human function not to replace it i guess does that does that make you sleep better at night curiosity <laughs>
1: <laughs> no I, I mean i'm still waiting to send uh john connor back in time to kill uh arnold schwarzenegger but <laughs> um or however that goes i think that was backwards um but yeah no i i agree 100% like like I, I kind of took a dive into machine learning at my office to uh, like we have, I have a, a group of guys who their job is to look at oil samples and kind of diagnose for the customer, whether there's an issue or not. And so like really what I used it for was do we need to look at samples or not? Right. And so like, it's a pretty, pretty good use for it because we were looking at, uh, you know, a bunch of samples and we were kind of only notifying the customer of about 22% of those. So we're doing 80% of work that we really don't need to do anything with.
2: So exactly. And and that's, you know, what I'm hearing is a type of anomaly detection, you know, is it normal? Or is it something that needs to be looked at, and to quickly be able to sort through that, say in an oil sample, for example. And the the, the you know the analogy for me was in, in my prior lifetime, uh, I co-founded a biomedical device company, and among other things, uh, one of our it was actually a secondary area was looking at cervical um, cervical cancer specimens, Pap smear slides, and trying to automate the process of you know, is it is it normal? Can a machine look at this and say, is this normal? Because ninety percent of the time it is. Or you know, is there a, is there a problem? And, and maybe a, a cytopathologist needs to take a look at it. Ten percent of the time, similar type of thing to what you're talking about here. You're you're automating a process of of you know a repetitive process of that's mostly normal. Right. You know, and and you just want to flag the, the, the samples, the oil samples that, that require somebody's attention.
1: And and it's funny actually is like especially in the medical use. I, I've been reading there's some there's some stuff where the, the human biases of the doctors actually like because they don't want to tell the patient that something's wrong, they'll like err on the side of of kind of saying that everything's normal. So it's kind of interesting that. The, the human biases are uh taken out of the the ai
2: yeah 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 that 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 that's certainly the case i would think which is good and bad right depending on the situation i'm guessing
1: <laughs> we should hope so so the last question i got for you mark before we get you out of here is um it's the same question i i asked to george and joe and ricky smith is so and you're kind of like you're on the cutting edge. So, where do you see reliability going? You know, in the next two to five years.
2: Two to five years. Um, I th- well, I think I think the next two to five years, what you're going to see is uh, what what was a, a culture of a lot of talk about AI and Internet of Things is going to be a culture around, hey, th- these are the benefits we're really seeing from that. Um, you know, these are, you know, failure, failure processes in the plant are, are long-term, right? You know, hopefully things aren't failing daily, right? <laughs> you know, a lot of the failure mechanisms that you'll see in our library and the time codes are, are in years, right? And so, so it takes time to, to implement these new systems and then track them you know, over the next few years to see if they're really providing benefit. And I'm convinced they are. And I think that's really going to be the discussion in two to five years. Um, We're going to be, we're going to be talking about the success of of internet of things as opposed to, it's going to be about, this is what we did as opposed to this is what we could do.
1: Yeah. And it's a, it's a pretty exciting time. I think in, in reliability, at least.
2: Oh, I, I I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, I'm kind of a tech nerd at heart, as you probably noticed, and um, you know, to be able to to be able to to do what we were doing at APT and now put that on steroids with data science and machine learning and AI is, is really exciting because you know you're, you're taking technology not for technology's sake, but to, to solve business problems. And, and that's a key thing I should probably mention about Uptake is what really struck me during the whole acquisition process of why this was such a good match for us to join them was you know, it's not just about data science. I mean, I talk to customers all the time, like, oh yeah, we have a data science department. Oh, and they, they flag stuff all the time. They give it to engineering and nobody looks at it. Engineering doesn't trust it you know, or some, some derivative thereof where the information is not getting shared with the right people for whatever reasons. At Uptake, we're really focused on, you know, it's data science to improve outcomes. You know, based on what we're seeing, what is the actual insight coming from the data science that we can provide to the customer that's going to affect the bottom line of the business, right? That's going to reduce failures, increase profits, et cetera. Um, and that type of focus, I think, is what we're going to be talking about even more in two to five years and why that's important and why it was successful. It's, it's built into our culture of uptake. You know, the customer is first. You know, it, it, you have to be solving the customer's. View. You have to be approving outcomes for the customer. Otherwise, none of this matters, right? It's, <laughs> it's fun to talk about, but none of it matters unless we're improving outcomes for the customer.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. It's that the drawing the the kind of the line between what you're doing and the business goals is, is so important in reliability and it's something that we're so weak in as an industry we're we're fairly weak at it overall, I would say. So Mark, um obviously if they want to if if our listeners want to learn more about uptake, they can just go to uptake.com. Uh, Do you have anything else you want to plug? Uh, Should they follow you on LinkedIn? Are you going to be at any conferences?
2: So our chief of data science and data strategy, Adam McElhaney, who, by the way, uh, was uh, awarded the technologist of the year award in Chicago last night. Um, He's going to be speaking out at the Global Artificial Intelligence Conference in Boston on September 27th. That'd be a great way. He's awesome. (laughs) I mean, one of the most impressive individuals I've ever met. Um, uh, he'd be a good person to see at a conference. And I know, uh, we're also going to be, and I lost track of where I stuck this here in my email inbox. Um, we're also going to be at the IOT world Congress in Barcelona from October 16th through the 18th. Those are a couple of conferences. I'd point out that, uh, I think are pretty exciting, where you can learn more, and of course, you know, follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter and those kinds of places, and and reach out. I mean, you can always reach out to me directly too if you have questions. I'm on LinkedIn. I probably don't use Twitter as much as I should, <laughs> but uh, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. If you want to find me there, That's Mark Benek, B-E-N-A-K.
1: Yeah, will you'll, you'll be tagged in the in the uh, post, and it'll be in the podcast notes if you're looking for Mark.
2: Oh okay great
1: <laughs> yeah i i yeah I don't use twitter either I, I still haven't found a a good use for it i don't I'm not that interesting so
2: well it's f- funny you mentioned that um to to me it's almost there's too many social media platforms for 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 me and my personality to want to track um I know Twitter is sort of gaining in popularity and it and this this week, our our president at Uptake, uh, Ganesh Bell, he was interviewed on Cheddar. I don't know if you're familiar with that business news service. And I've heard him say this before, but he talks about kind of the problem today. And and really only 1% of data in industrial plants is used for anything. So there's 99% that's not being leveraged to improve outcomes. And his analogy is, it's like, it's like, you know, we all have a Twitter feed that's, spitting out information multiple times per second or minute. Uh, but, but nobody's looking at it or commenting on it, you know, <laughs> which is, it was not a very fun world, right? <laughs> um, and and that, that's where, that's where uptake and AI can, can come in and change that dynamic.
1: Yeah, no, that's really cool. And and there, I think there are some artificial intelligence firms that are looking at um, tweets in order to predict like stock movements. So it's, it's all oh, there's data, and you can use it.
2: <laughs> well, let me let me be, let me be very clear. Uptake is solely focused on a world that always works, an industrial world that always works, and machines don't have to break. We we don't. We, I was just using Twitter's analogy, not to, not something that we, we would look at in terms of data science because, you know, we're really there for the industrial customer. But I, it doesn't surprise me to hear from you that there are companies out there doing that sort of thing.
1: I just wait five years and your gearbox will have a Twitter account. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> exactly. The point is, and I gave a talk yesterday at a conference locally, um, by 2020, the year 2020, they estimate 20.8 billion devices that'll be putting, devices can mean a lot of different things, but industrial equipment, including, can be putting information you know, onto the industrial internet, so to speak, that data are available from these devices. And by 2030, the World Economic Forum uh uh, has predicted that fifteen trillion with a t trillion dollars in value will be created by the internet of things, and I think we 're just in the early days of this now, so it 's a pretty exciting time to be working on these types of problems
1: absolutely and the the cloud's going to get full at some point so <laughs>
2: well, you know is that <laughs> So that's a, that's a good question. I know, I'm sure somebody's done this analysis, you know, Moore's law versus, you know, how quickly we're going to be spewing data into the internet. You know, I, I, I wonder if anybody's looked at that, uh, can, can we fill up the cloud or are we always going to be ahead of it in terms of storage space and processing capability, et cetera? I don't know. Um,
1: <laughs> uh, that's for, that's a question for somebody else.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's, that's, Beyond my uh, subject matter expertise.
1: <laughs> Perfect. So, Mark, thank you for coming on and sharing your expertise with us.
2: Oh, it's been my pleasure, Rob, and it's it's been an honor to be on this podcast with so many other great individuals that you've interviewed in the past. Thank you for including me.
1: No, absolutely, um, definitely. We'll we'll have to have you back on and maybe bring your chief data scientist. He sounds like an interesting guy. Definitely.
2: Um, we'd love to do that. Uh, uh, you know, I was thinking in preparation for this, you might you might be interested in talking to David Warledge and Glenn Hinchcliffe. I mean, Glenn Hinchcliffe co-authored a book called RCM Gateway to World Class Maintenance. David, uh, Dr. David is originally a nuclear physicist, but he wrote the original probability probabilistic risk assessment code, PRA code that's now called CAFTA. And that was like 30 years ago. And once he solved that problem, he started thinking about maintenance and reliability. And little did he know, it's a much more complex, nonlinear process than he ever anticipated. He's still working on it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, sounds like I'm always happy to nerd out. So I'd love to have those guys on.
2: Great, I'll let them know.
1: Perfect. So. Mark, thank you for coming on. Everyone who's listening, thank you for listening. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, it's on your favorite platform.